Can you imagine it? So the most angry man that's ever walked the earth is none other than dear Jesus. He had such a fiery indignation, such a righteous sense of anger as his perspective real. You see, how could it be otherwise? His mind realizes what's true. He sees the dimensions of God. He sees the kindness and love and characteristics and abilities of God. He sees what God had wanted to give man. And here man, little man, is revolting against the bounty of the great being of God. How can he help but have a sense of indignation of the most positive sort? He conceived the temple where God wanted to speak to the human race and manifested himself in so many ways, didn't he? What are they doing? Commercializing the whole venture. Hypocrisy, falseness. Here's the place of God's voice. What are they doing with it? Can't you see him driving them out of the temple? And yet they looked at his face and they never saw such an angry person in their whole life. And they saw here's a person means business and they knew down in their heart and their mind that he was right. And so you see, they resisted and he really demonstrated his feeling toward the matter of superficiality and falsehood. So you have these indi indications, do you not? Here you have the story of the coin. They're trying to tie him up now in political trouble. And uh, they meant, Master, <laughs> is it lawful to give unto Caesar? Here's a total hypocrisy. He sees the whole thing. He gives them a challenge. He says, show me a coin here. Whose image is there? And you can imagine how he's doing this. And, and here's Caesar's image. Well, you give to Caesar what's deserved, what he deserves. And you give to God what he deserves. And my... They're amazed there, aren't they? Not only at his uh, brilliance in uh, challenging them, but in the attitude that he manifested. Here's a man with a withered hand, as you read here in Mark 3, 5, and 6. And here's the Sabbath. And here's the technicality. Is it, good? Is it right to do good on the Sabbath or not? And so here's, here the, here's the audience of the religious leaders. And here's the man standing before him. And they're just ready to catch him here now. They got to get rid of this man, Jesus. They can't tell him anymore. They're trying to find some occasion. And then the scripture says he looked around about them with indignation. How do you suppose he looked as he went to eye to eye? Then he said to the man, stretch forth thy hand. Here's the compassion of Jesus. Also the balance of the anger and righteous indignation of Jesus. So man needed to know how God feels concerning sin. And when the scripture says God is angry with the wicked every day, this was a part of the revelation that had to come to pass so man could see what God would be like that there couldn't be any superficiality in this reconciliation that God wants to do. Isn't it melting? God with such a moving heart of love is wanting to do us every conceivable good. Yet his hands are tied. He can't bar out his bounty unless we little tiny brains are going to bring our little tiny beings into adjustment with his great life. How can there be any reconciliation apart from a total rethinking of our position, which will be our next subject, how we enter into this sweet plan of God and His loving mercy. And all the members of the Godhead shared in this great adventure, as we've said. Here you have the Father sending the Son, going with the dear Jesus. He supported Him in His life and by His love, as Jesus says. And God is so pleased that Jesus has come into this humble adventure. And Jesus comes to suffer and die and bear our burdens, doesn't He? The Holy Spirit likewise endues Jesus for His life's work. Here's the anointing of the Spirit which came upon Jesus here uh, to begin His ministry and how the Holy Spirit worked with Jesus right up to the end. So here you have the whole concept of the Godhead, do we not? And there has to be a reverence toward God. 
Oh my, is there anything that's so lacking as this in our day? The absence of reverential fear toward God? There can't be anything else. Of course, this relates to the, to the concept of righteousness. And as soon as we see what God is like and how great He is and where our position is, the natural place then is for we ourselves down in a state of utter humility before God. And there's such a lack of fear of God. Remember Jesus said, I tell you who you shall fear, fear not them that kill the body. It's all they can do. And But fear him who has power to cast both soul and body in hell. He said, I tell you, fear him. And so you have these many, many scriptures throughout the Bible indicating the necessity of reverence. Here you have in summary, you have 1 Peter 1.17 here. And if God is in his great, austere greatness, which is his proper position, we must come to our proper position if we're going to relate ourselves to you. In this elementary, isn't this logical? Oh my, isn't it beautiful to see the logic of God's truth from beginning to end? If you address the Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. So here has to be a wonderful attitude of humility. Now, as we said last night, when God gets us down where we belong, then He wants to lift us up where, he don't, where we don't belong. And this will be some of the blessings of this week, trying to see what God wants to do for us. But before He can do anything like this, we have to be humble before God so He can uh, begin with us in the area of truth. Because all pride is superficiality, isn't it? All self-assertiveness is a demanding of what is not true. And how can God relate Himself to us in this area? Then there had to be some force of humiliation to bring us down. We can't untie ourselves that we so carefully built our and reinforced our selves in self-defense. And so unless God can find a way to humble us, we will not be humbled. It won't be enough for people to say they're humbled. My, isn't this a deception? And so people think in personal work, they get somebody to say, I am a sinner. Just a kind of a cold, calculated way many times. But this doesn't mean a thing in God's sight. God looks at the attitude of heart, doesn't he? The whole personality. What you say with your lips doesn't mean anything. It's going on in our mind, our whole attitude of life. And so something had to happen here. In 1 Peter 5, 5, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And here you have an important passage, for example, in the discipline section of Hebrews 12. It talks about our human parents, how they tried to discipline us. They tried their best according to their knowledge. And then it talks about the disciplines of God. How He is trying to uh, discipline us for our good. And He is perfect in His discipline because He knows absolutely uh, what is the best thing to do. Then we have a, a statement here in Hebrews 12:9. After speaking, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? How do you live spiritually? Being subject to God. So there has to be a coming down before God. Now this is what something we talked about the other night. Here dear Jesus is now higher in His position in the Godhead because of His earthly adventure, isn't He? Remember we developed this on our chart here. Here was His brief time down here on earth. Then He said, my work is finished. Now He ascends up into heaven. He brings a resurrection body with Him into heaven where He now is in His resurrection body. And now He is higher in His exaltation. 
as you have uh, Philippians 2, and uh, beginning with verse 9. Here is the higher exaltation now, which is above every name, and that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as we have already mentioned, there has got to be a humiliation somewhere. And if we're going to be forgiven, and we're not going to come into the judgment for our sins, because God says He's going to remember them no more, somewhere there's got to be an evaluation, doesn't it, of our life. Somewhere we've got to see what we were like and take our proper position before God. Do you suppose there can be any salvation without our coming down to our proper dimensions and seeing our condition before God? And God in His great love wants to forgive. He doesn't pressurize us to spend months and months reviewing our sins, writing them down, and seeing the true judgment that we deserve. But He's so compassionate that as soon as He sees us in humility, He can't stand it anymore, but exerts His tender heart of love. But there has to be a meeting point between God and man, and that must be the area of truth. And when we see ourselves as we are before God, then God can forgive us and lift us up in His bounty of love. This is inescapable in thinking, certainly. There has to be somewhere that we are going to recognize what we were. And so we need to realize and be awed by the judgments our sin deserved before God can allow us to escape their judgment by forgiveness. You have here Hebrews 9.27 that pointed unto man once to die, after this the judgment. If there's not going to be a future judgment for our sins, then we have to have that here, do we not? Some kind of evaluation. And so the second atonement comes in and shows us what God means and how He's exerted Himself to humble us in His wonderful being. And all we see so deflating, isn't this the way Jesus embarrassed pride? So we say that pride has to be embarrassed out of our life by humility. And it's so sweet to think of it. Jesus never pushes people down, does He? He always draws them down. Oh, we could talk for a while upon the Last Supper. And can you imagine, isn't it tender? John chapter 13, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. He says, I want to have just one more time with you before I go. He comes into their presence, what are they doing? Are they sympathizing with him? No. Do they realize the tensions? He said, no. They're arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Can you imagine such a horrible thing for Jesus to come into this room with his tender, broken heart? his heart of love. And here he finds them arguing about their own little tiny greatness when he realizes the dimensions of the kingdom of God and so on. How does he handle this? Does he crack the ceiling with thunder? Does he shake the whole house with an earthquake? What does he do? He, dis he puts off his outer coat and reaches for a basin, which they had to do, of course, continually as they walked the dusty streets of Palestine. And then you had to always wash your feet before you came into a house, actually. And now here's what the servants did, and uh, so on. And so here Jesus is going to bring them down by going below them. Isn't this a moving thing? And uh, he gets to Peter, and Peter, is, he's having trouble. And he said, Lord, this isn't right at all. You're never going to wash my feet, Lord. You see who's winning the argument now? Here Peter's building up his own estimation of his greatness. And here Jesus deflating him by being below him. And he, he's feeling his pride just running out into the humility of Jesus. 
And then can you imagine how Jesus must have looked at Peter? Is Peter, if I don't wash you, you'll no part with me. My, there must have been a lot in that look, don't you think? You think this accomplished more than an earthquake would have done? Or than a shock of some kind through the room would have done? This is the way Jesus does things. As we see his tender love poured out for us, your pride just starts to leak out, doesn't it? And the little bubble we built for ourselves, our own importance, just runs right out. And so Peter says, Lord, not only my feet, but my hands and my head. You have me. You've won me. And so it is that the sacred atonement performs an impossible function. We're ready for judgment, as we'll talk about in our next section, but we're not ready for love. And when God shows us His love, this is the great power that deflates us. You know, wonderful there is this available for us. Don't you feel good when you come down before God? Where you say, God, you're just wonderful, you're great. I'm nothing. I belong down here in the dust. Doesn't prostration on the floor look logical? When we see what God is like, especially when we see the compassion and love of God, doesn't it become natural to be humble? Remember we tried to say, let's not put pressure on people to humble themselves. Let's ask for the anointing of the Holy Spirit so we may describe the realities of God. And when people see the realities of God, the most natural thing they can ever do is humble themselves. This will be real. It won't be superficial. It will be a collapse of the pride before the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, if you love me like this, of course you can have every bit of me. And how beautiful to have this position. And then we have a, a relationship with God. You can't put this in words. How do you put human relationships in words? How would I try to describe to you the last time my mother looked at me? She's 75 years old now. I'm going out on Sunday evening to preach. I didn't think this would be the last time I saw her. But there was certain, a magic way of looking at me. You don't put this in words, do you? And so when God looks at us out of His tender heart of compassion and out of the sacredness of the atonement, you don't put this in words. This is His beautiful melting force that says, Jesus, you want to own me, and you sure can. Here's the end of all the tensions, isn't it? All the me-firstism with all its excitements. And we see in Jesus, as Paul said, in Him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We see in this wonderful manifestation, His whole life, the true, worthwhile things of life. We're so convinced that God is right and that Jesus is right, and that our former way is wrong, that we've got to leave our former way because we're convinced that it is wrong and that God is right. There has to be this change of view, does there not? Then God wants to heal the damage problem. We said we're so wonderful, we can do ourselves such unthinkable damage, bring such chaos into our personality. He wants to put us back in order. This we call transformation. And we see through the Scripture that we have a part in this. We're not passive, not some little magic thing that God does for us. We have to go with the Holy Spirit to the cross of Jesus. And then as we do this, because the Holy Spirit wants to rework us, but He can't do this with our consent, can He? Because he wants to put this back in order. He wants to put our imagination back in order. We've used them so wrongly. He wants to put our mind back in order. 
He wants to help us to see what is worthwhile to think about because we've used our mind wrongly in some area of selfishness. And so he wants to put our emotions back in order because they've had such pressure, they had such dominance. They're demanding. He wants to put his great big pressure over them and tuck them back into the place of submission, which they always should have been. And when we let these emotions out of submission, they become unthinkably explosive. And Jesus wants to do all these things through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, as it were, takes us along with him to the sacred cross and life and sufferings of Jesus. And as we concentrate in the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit upon the reality of what Jesus did and suffered for us, here's the magic thing that brings about the transformation. The Holy Spirit makes real now the sufferings of Christ. And as we concentrate on the reality that the Holy Spirit gives us, here's the magic source of power that puts things back in order in our life and starts us out as happy children of God. And the first thing you know, we're praising God. We're thanking Him for His love. We're thanking Him for His forgiveness. We're thanking Him for His delicacy to us, aren't we? And we just worship and love God. The love of God is shed upon our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so instead of chaos and disturbance, there comes rest and peace. And we're so satisfied, we say, Lord, never, never one more sin in my life. Of course there can't be. If you love me like this, there can't be any more sin. Of course, we don't know ourselves. We don't know the situation. We haven't learned the secret of depending upon the Lord for victory. We think we're going to have victory in ourselves. We think we're some kind of self-sustained beings to begin with. And certainly theology often helps us in this area. And we have to learn some painful lessons in this matter. But there never has been one single child of God who began in the family of God who had one single tiny plan of sin that was going to be done. Because this is totally inconsistent with reconciliation. There can't be one single thing that I plan to do in my knowledge at that particular moment that is contrary to the will of God. God can't conceivably reconcile anybody who's not in a total submission, who's not convinced in what is true, and is determined to live for what is true, if God can find a way to forgive and transform. Oh, how beautiful and lovely. Here's the means then. Oh, it's a lovely passage as well. Here's the operation of the Holy Spirit discussed here in Acts 15. And here Peter is arising and saying what God did to him and how he went to Cornelius' household as the direction of the Holy Spirit and how he began to speak the things that God moved upon him to say. And here we have in, that God did, did this wonderful thing. Uh, Acts 15, 8, And God who knows the heart, who knows the attitude, the disposition, the will, He sees through a total transparency of our life. God who knows the heart bore witness to them. How did He do this? Giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them. And what happened when the Holy Spirit came in? Cleansing our hearts by faith. So here's this magic thing that takes place as we join our little lives and go with the Holy Spirit into this great new adventure of transformation. And it didn't seem like it could ever happen. We were so pressed down with guilt and conviction. It didn't look like we could ever be released. And my, when the soul is released and the pressure's off, it's just like an explosion of personality. This is a miracle, isn't it? The miracle of grace that the New Testament is filled with. Now, this could never happen except there would be the means by which this could take place. Oh, the serenity of our relation to God. This is what the saints of God have found down through the ages, is it not? And so the Holy Spirit wants to help us in our life too. 
He wants to lead us, not push us. Remember the idea of shepherd, he goes before. The idea is the devil, he goes behind. He pushes you. But, but Jesus goes before. Jesus can't understand why people love the false shepherd. He says, I'm the good shepherd, John 10. Why do people like the false shepherd? What good did he ever do for anybody? This is a great mystery to Jesus, isn't it? He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He hazards his life. He hazards his welfare. He's sharp to see the perceptions of difficulties that we're coming into. He goes ahead of us. He sees the difficulties ahead of us. We can only learn to be sensitive to his delicacy. Indeed, he will lead us, will he not? He says, don't look this way. Don't do this. Don't get involved in this. You just follow my me, Ralph. And keep your eyes on me. I'll tell you what the situations are ahead of you. Isn't this a sweet life that Jesus has planned? And so here's the help of the Holy Spirit. And you don't know you have the Holy Spirit by Him telling you so. You know you have the power of the Holy Spirit as we've seen when the resurrected reality of Jesus Christ is enthroned in our hearts and minds and we feel the sacredness of the holiness of God and the sacredness of the love of God coming down in our being in such a marvelous way. And we feel the power of the shepherd leading us on because he loves us. He binds up our wounds. He, he heals our hearts. And he warms us by his presence. He convinces us of the reality. We're so solidly satisfied in his love that we're determined this is what's going to be. So he wants to give us confidence in the struggles of life, doesn't he? And you have Romans 5, uh, 9 and 10. 5, 8 said that God was commending his love. And now 9 and 10 is supposed to give us encouragement in our struggles that we face. Because the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus want to be with us and help us. And so you say, much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Because Jesus is coming to our hearts. Let's not be discouraged, friends. Jesus is coming to our hearts to help us. We don't deserve His sympathy many times. But He's giving us what we don't deserve. Isn't this characteristic of our life with Jesus? And so he wants to encourage us. For while we're enemies, here's the argument then. If while we're enemies, we're reconciled to God through the death of his son. If Jesus came into the world when we were enemies, how much more is he going to help us now that we become friends? Much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So he wants to come in and lead us and guide us to a, throughout the shoals. When a ship comes into a harbor, think of the underlying shoals. You've seen some of the depth maps here and the, and the, all, the little uh, almost islands here is slightly below the surface. And so you, though the, though a, a, a captain goes out into the ocean to take over the ship's guidance because he knows the pathway. Oh my, we might have illustrated radar. I was in a fisherman's boat up in Norway one time and this gentleman had a little time to explain the mysteries of this, this uh, ship. And here you have this radar equipment, very expensive equipment, he, told, he talked to me about his great high-powered diesel engine. And he talked to me about his radar equipment. And this radar equipment, of course, discovers every single uh, island, every single... It also records the depth as well as the surface obstacles. He says we can run our engine just wide open, night and day. We just start from our port and we just run it wide open. We just keep our eyes right here on the radar. This tells us where the, the next little island is and where the opening is and the depth of the channel. We just follow our radar right on through. I said to myself, my, and I tried to impress him, my, what a wonderful radar Jesus Christ wants to be to us. He knows the islands and the bumps and the hazards and all about us. And if we'll just let him guide us, praise God, he'll lead us, will he not, into happy victory 
And we can just go full speed ahead if we keep our eyes on dear Jesus, can't we? That's what this is about. He wants to come and help us. The law was wonderful. You couldn't improve on its descriptions. But Paul says in Romans 8, there's a weakness of the flesh. We shouldn't be weak, but we are. And there's no excuse for us uh, being like we were, Paul says. But it's simply net result that we're not what we can be. And Jesus wants to come and give us this push and this guidance, if you please. He wants to lead us in the fragrance of His heart and His love. So we see what God wants to do for us. And He does this through the sacred atonement. And we are to keep our eyes upon what Jesus did for us. And here then is the means of deliverance, is it not? Oh, praise God. Aren't we glad we can have thoughts like this? I didn't expect this this morning. Do you appreciate the Spirit trying to teach you some things? And so we go back the way we started. And we have the summary. We give you a whole page there in summary. And I trust you'll see the, the intent of this, this page here. And we're trying to say in this page that the early church didn't practice any theories. They simply allowed themselves to think on the dreadful adventure of God. They had the background of animal sacrifices. Paul and the apostles went over this fact as a background. This was their starting point. Then they said that this, this couldn't solve the problems of sin. And so God comes into the world to solve the problems of sin. And so they went over the life of Jesus like we've tried to do. Show what He stood for and what the principles of God was. How there had to be these manifestation of truth because it's the truth that is going to set people free. And how the Spirit of God was helping them. And if they could get anybody to sit down and think about the life of Jesus and His sacred atonement, it's impossible to think about it and be neutral. You either have to revolt about it and quit thinking about it, or you have to think about it and let it affect you. And neutrality is impossible as we sit down and view the facts we tried to discuss together. And so here's God's adventure. The Bible does not systematize all the reasons for the necessity of the awful event of the sufferings of Christ. God doesn't want to stress all kinds of theories. He wants to see actualities. God is concerned with one thing, getting me and getting you into a total intelligent submission to God's wonderful way of life and to experience His forgiveness, His restoration, so we can be like the Ethiopian eunuch who went on his way rejoicing. He'd met God. He'd been satisfied in his mind. There was forgiveness. There was the blessing of heaven on his soul. He gets back into his chariot. He goes on his way rejoicing. This is what God wants to achieve through this great adventure. The Bible does state, however, that in some vital sense, the sufferings of Christ from a broken heart over the world's sin during a brief duration of time unto death were substituted for the endless punishment of sinners as a measure of righteous forgiveness of sins when the conditions of sincere repentance and the committal of faith are exercised. This is the way the Bible presents it as a factual matter, is it not? Let it always be remembered, we mentioned here in the middle of your page, let it always be remembered that no one is saved because he professes to believe in a particular theory of the atonement or because he's made a mental deduction. Oh my, the tragedy of this. That he's saved because he believes in a particular theory. We are saved when we have allowed ourselves to be exposed and oh, the importance of this in the illumination of the Holy Spirit. 
Here's the secret of saving faith we're going to see. The illumination of the Holy Spirit. To the gruesome fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has come into our world, has suffered the agony of death because of our sins, have thus been humbled under the guilt of our sins and repentance, and have committed ourselves wholly in faith to the Savior's sufferings as the only means of forgiveness. So here we have this total collapse in a whole life at the loving feet of Jesus. He's the totality of revelation. He's taught us what God is like, what God's truth is like. He showed us what love and compassion is like. He showed us what the heart of God is like. And we're so satisfied with His whole picture that we, of course, we say, Dear sweet Jesus, you can certainly have me if you'll take me. And so here's the great meaning of such a verse is first, as John 1, 4, 12. As many as received Him, of course this means all that Christ is and died for us. The important word of the word is Him here, isn't it? As many as received Him in His totality, to them He gave the right to become the children of God. And when this is done in all sincerity, we'll receive the assurance of the witness of the Holy Spirit that all our past sins have been forgiven, praise God, and we'll experience transformation of heart and life and Peter wrote that we will greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Oh, I just want to worship God to you.